Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. Over the next three weeks, we are taking some time to think about some of the practices we do as an Anglican church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and creeds. These practices can seem somewhat strange at times, but they are all ways in which we celebrate the wonderful truth at the heart of the gospel. That is, our salvation is secure because of what Jesus has done. For more information and audio content, please visit neac.com.au. Hi, the first reading comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It's on page 1162. That's page 1162. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Second reading comes from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and that's found on page 1178. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify that our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. Who, is, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. 
That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Evening, folks. Happy fathers to none of the fathers out there. Just getting that right. None of you are fathers, right? This is, this is a hat that my dad gave me during the week. It's got my initials on it, RF. It happens to be a Roger Federer hat. Uh, it's not too late to text your dad and say Happy Father's Day, if, that, if you haven't got to that yet. Uh, <clears throat> hello, my name's Roger. I'm part of the ministry team here. Uh, we are week three of three weeks uh, in a sermon series called... Well, it doesn't really matter what it's called. It's really about stuff that we do together. Stuff that we do together. Uh, in the first week, we talked about baptism, something that we do together in church. And we did it. Mel, it was great. It was beautiful. If you missed it, I'm sorry, you missed it, but it was great. Baptism reminds us of what God has done through Jesus, that he washes away our sin and gives us new life in him. Week one, baptism. Week two, stuff we do together, creeds. Last week, Andrew, sorry, week two, the Lord's Supper. Creeds is tonight. We'll get to that. Week two, the Lord's Supper, we remembered last week uh, that Jesus himself has instituted a meal, the fulfillment of that Passover meal that Israel ate, a reminder of a body given and blood poured out, a sacrifice which happened once to take away sin, a meal that looks backwards and looks forwards to the time where we will eat together with God, a meal that has at its centre Jesus' sacrifice for sin. Uh, tonight, we're looking at creeds. Now, uh, Reg, can you put up our little structure for tonight? <clears throat> here's, the, here's the way we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about three creeds that exist in the Anglican realm, in case you didn't realise. We're in an Anglican church, um, and so there are three creeds that the Anglican prayer book says are two thumbs up, highly trustworthy. It's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. <clears throat> I'm going to talk mostly about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we're going to talk briefly about those three creeds. Uh, we're going to look in detail at the Apostles' Creed that talks about the three persons of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we'll finish by thinking about our three things about us. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get stuck into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we ask again as we uh, look at your Word tonight and consider what you've called us uh, to be as your people and what you've called us to do, uh, that you would again lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, We thank you that it was your plan from before the beginning of creation uh, to make him the Christ, the King, uh, the Lord of all creation. And we pray that tonight uh, you might uh, remind us of what you've done through him. Uh, We pray that uh, we would be uh, people who grow in knowledge and love of you because of that. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, if you've got that uh, 2 Timothy reading open, it'd be great to look at that as we start. It's 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, page 1178, if you accidentally flicked closed your Bible. Because even before we start looking at the three creeds, it's really important to draw a distinction between what we believe and in whom we believe. Even if you're not a grammar Nazi, like some of us, uh, There's a really important distinction at the start here. Creeds can come across as two things. One, 
if you're just a stranger who walks in off the street and you see a bunch of Christians reciting stuff that we believe in, let's face it, looks a bit like a cult. But the second thing is that uh, when we recite things that we believe, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, it can just seem like a series of facts. And the creed is, you know, in fact, a series of facts, a series of truths, a series of propositions. But it's so much more than that because the facts point to the person of God. Now, look at 2 Timothy with me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is talking about how he's an apostle down in verse 12 and a teacher. That's why he's suffering as he is because he's following in the footsteps of the Christ who suffered. Uh, Verse 12, yet I'm not ashamed because I know, what does Paul know? He doesn't know what he believes. Well, he does know what he believes. It's not what he says here. Look at verse 12. This is really important. The whole of the rest of the sermon hangs on this. Paul says, yet I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. That is to say, Paul's experience of being a person who follows Jesus is knowing God. It's the very same way that Jesus explained it in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you as he prays to his Father in heaven and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you are a Christian, you are a person who knows God. You don't just know stuff about him, although that's certainly true, but you know God. And it would be healthy for us to ask ourselves, is that me? Is that you? Do you know God? Are you a person who's done what Paul describes here in verse 12? Have you entrusted yourself to him? That's really one of the ways you can talk about becoming a Christian. Entrusting your life to Jesus. To say to Jesus, I recognize that you know what's best. That only you can pay the penalty for sin that I'm facing. That I've lived as a rebel against God and I stand facing God's righteous anger, his wrath. I recognize that you've paid that penalty and given me a life guaranteed by your resurrection. To entrust your life to Jesus is a relational activity. It's not simply intellectual assent, although it does involve knowing things. As we think about the creeds tonight, there'll be a temptation to get caught up in the facts. The facts matter. But the facts point to the person of God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we're going to talk uh, briefly about the three creeds. Thanks, Reg. Three creeds. Beautiful. Uh, Three creeds. There are three creeds we're going to talk about. The Apostles' Creed, which was not written by the Apostles. The Nicene Creed which wasn't written at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and the Athanasian Creed, which wasn't written by Athanasius. Okay, so we've got that cleared up. Uh, Three creeds, none of whose names are all that helpful. The Apostles' Creed starts with, I believe. Uh, We have it uh, from Christian history as a succinct summary of what it is to turn to Jesus in faith. In the Anglican Prayer Book, it's meant to be said most Sundays. This is what I believe. And particularly at baptism. Because it's a personal coming up in front of God and saying, in the presence of other Christians, I believe. It's personal. 
The Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed are both are caught up in theological controversies of their day, mostly to do with what God is like. What is God like? And it's just a, worth pausing for a minute. If you had to describe someone says, you believe in God, what do you believe about God? There's a sense in which your brain just kind of explodes then, right? So much to say. Where do you start? The Nicene Creed, uh, which reflects what the Council of Nicaea did in 325, uh, historical side note. I'm going to walk over here for historical side notes. Uh, The Roman Emperor Constantine was the first emperor to become a Christian. Uh, He thought that it would be a good idea for all of the Christian leaders of the time to get together and decide what it was they actually believed to get together and kind of make it formal, because that's what governments do, make it formal. It's not as if Christianity didn't exist until that time, that they hadn't really thought about what they believed. Of course they had. Just that he formalised it because he was in government. That's what governments do. So the Council of Nicaea, 325, was basically caught up with the idea of whether Jesus was in fact God. Now, do you think Jesus is God? Nod your head. Yeah. Jesus is God. That's correct. But it's tempting to think, isn't it, that because he was born as a baby and lived as a man, that he couldn't really be God. And so the Nicene Creed particularly is caught up with Jesus being of one being with the Father. Of one being with the Father. That Although he was born, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, the The heart of the Nicene Creed is holding very tightly to the idea that Jesus himself is God. More of that in a little while. The Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed, uh, and really this is just a perfect time for you to do some internet research. Um, The Athanasian Creed is the longest of the three creeds. It's probably the, I don't want to say the most boring, but it's the most theologically precise and it's bound up really tightly with the idea of God as Trinity. Now, Reg, can we have the slide that I took from the Erskineville stained glass window today? Now, I don't know how well you can read that or how good your Latin is. This is a stained glass window from our little sister church down at Erskineville. Uh, We call it Erko Village Anglican Church. Um, In the Anglican directory, it's known as Holy Trinity Erskineville. One of the things that Christians believe because of Uh, The Bible is the way that God is described is one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what this little Latin stained glass... You didn't think you would come to church tonight and get Latin and stained glass, did you? But here we are. Uh, So in the middle is Deus, not a store on Parramatta Road, but the Latin word for God. God is the little white strands that go out radially from the centre to those three little clover leaves. They say est, not meaning in hipster land established, but is in Latin. God is, uh, up at 10 o'clock, pater. God is father. The father is God. Top right, 2 o'clock, filius. God is the son. More specifically, the son is God. And down the bottom, little Latin shortstop, spiritus sanctus, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. So going in towards the centre... From those three points, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And then around the outside, just in case you hadn't thought this through, the Father is not the Son. So, pater, non est, filius. 
makes sense of Jesus praying, right? That when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not talking to himself. He's talking to his father. And the son is not the spirit. So when Jesus says, I will send you a counselor, the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about sending himself. He's going to be sitting at the right hand of the father and they will send the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Son, is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. This is what the Athanasian Creed makes perfectly clear. Uh, if you want to look at it, look it up on the internet. It's quite interesting. Um, and if you need any questions about that, come to Andrew's question time tonight. But tonight, three creeds, the Apostles' Creed, not written by the Apostles, the Nicene Creed, not written at the Council of Nicaea, and the Athanasian Creed, not written by Athanasius. Three creeds which reflect what the Bible says about God. In case you haven't heard me say that clearly tonight, these are not creeds that were discovered as if someone dug them up and went, oh, here's some information about God. All of the creeds get what they say from the scriptures. All of the creeds reflect what people read in God's word, in the letters that the gospel writers and the apostles wrote. And they just put it together in a way that was easy to understand. Um, So we're going to work through the Apostles' Creed briefly tonight, just noting some of the things that are going to happen. And so I'm going to start by talking about God as Father. So uh, after the sermon tonight, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed tonight. Here's the opening of it. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now happily, not coincidentally, we started with Psalm 95 through the front end of church tonight, which talks about God as the creator When we say the creed that we believe in a God who is the Father, he is almighty and the creator of heaven and earth, it's a reminder, a confession, that God has owner's rights over the world. I have a seven-year-old son called Josh, and he loves Lego. When he makes something out of Lego, it's very, very upsetting to him when his little sisters come and smash it to pieces, which is what they do. Not out of nastiness, but just because they're three and four, and when they play with Lego, it breaks. Josh knows that when he makes something, it's his. It's a little, little picture of the reality that we belong to God because we are his. As we say the creed, we're reminded that we are not God. We are not the rulers of our own destinies. It kind of fights against the grain of what happens day by day in your life. You go through each day making decisions which have real impact on what you do. And most of the time, it's as though you are directing your own destiny. Be who you want to be. Make the choices you really make. But the reality is that you and I are not in control of this world. And various things will happen in your life, if they haven't already, to remind you that you are not in control when you lose your job, when you get kicked out of your house for one reason or another, when people you cherish walk away or die. You're reminded that you are not in control. You are not the creator, you are a creature. I never expect to know everything about anything, not just because I haven't studied enough, but because by nature as a creature, someone who is created... I have true but limited knowledge of the world. And when we say the creed that we believe in God who is Father Almighty, Creator, we're just remembering who we are. 
We are the sheep of his pasture, the flock under his care. And if we didn't mention the fact that on Father's Day, God is a father to us, this is a, a beautiful moment of tenderness. Yes, God is just and causes us to be disciplined for our good, like a good father does. But today is an especially poignant day to remember that God loves us as a father loves a child. Uh, if you're not a parent, you can still understand this. Um, but just ask, ask your mum or your dad how much they love you. It can be a dangerous question sometimes. Uh, or ask some of the besotted parents that you know how much they love their children. I mean, God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were his enemies, he sent his own son to die for us. If you ever doubt, because of your own father, that God is a good father to you, look to the cross of Christ. God loves you. Secondly, uh, the second person about whom the creed speaks, the Apostles' Creed, is Jesus himself. Uh, when we say that I believe in Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about I believe in Andrew Errington, Errington being the surname. Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's his title, his kingly title, Christ Messiah. Same word for the idea that Jesus is God's appointed king. Is that how you think about Jesus? Jesus is a king. We know that God is a father. And one of the things that we recognize as we say the creed is that Jesus is a king. We know what type of king he is by the way he wielded his power. Yes, he calmed the storm with a word. He raised the dead to life. He's the king who is ultimately powerful. But he's also the king who washes his disciples' feet and says, do as I do. Jesus is the king who takes the punishment for his people. And Jesus is the king who defeats death. Did you read that in 2 Timothy 1? He conquered death. He's a victorious king. Rah! Sort of king you can get behind and take joy in the victory he has won. Jesus is the Christ, the king. If you're a Christian, this is the one to whom you have entrusted yourself. Jesus the Christ. The next few lines of the creed unfold what sort of king he is. He's a king who is, well, a son, God's only son. Those words from John 1 ringing in your ears. The only begotten of the father. God's only son. And just to make it clear that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, the creed says that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, when I gave this sermon this morning at Erskineville, there were quite conveniently five or six babies in the room. And so it's easy to point out the fact that Jesus was like this. Jesus was born as a baby. Mary and Joseph held him in their arms. God, the son. He was little, weak, defenseless, vulnerable, properly human like you and like me, prone to all the weaknesses and desires of the flesh, which he fully inhabited. That's why we read Philippians 2 tonight. Being in very nature God... 
He was made as one of us. But being fully human, Jesus was also fully God. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, you kind of meant to go, what? That's completely beyond our experience. Both of those things. We know that when someone's pregnant, two people have been involved in that. In Jesus' case, Mary was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Let's not get into the technicalities because we're just not given them, which I think is quite helpful. But Jesus is fully God and born of a virgin as a sign that this is not just a human baby. It is a human, but this one is God's own son. Let's keep going through the creed. The Apostles' Creed doesn't give us much when it comes to Jesus' life. In fact, he was born of the Virgin Mary and fast forward to Jesus' death. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. I think the Apostles recognise that if you want to find out about Jesus, you can read the Gospels. I encourage you to do that. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. A reminder that Jesus' life was historical, grounded in history. He was crucified, died and was buried The Roman centurion who plunged his sword into Jesus' side, the flow of blood and water reminds us that he was really dead. Jesus descended to the dead. Now, this version of the creed, descended to the dead, doesn't have he descended into hell. I think the two trickiest uh, or commonly misunderstood bits of the creed are this one and one that's coming up in a minute about the Holy Catholic Church. Let's just spend a moment thinking about what it means for Jesus to descend to the dead. Here's the point. Jesus was really dead. Historical side note over here. Have you heard of the swoon theory? The swoon theory. It's a theory that when uh, Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't completely dead. He was only mostly dead. Uh, And at that point, uh, his disciples took him down from the cross and put him in a tomb where he recuperated and days later uh, was freed or fought his way out behind the stone and the soldiers uh, to life again. The swoon theory is not true about Jesus. Jesus was dead on the cross. The centurion attested to it. The fact that they were experts at crucifixion. No doubt that Jesus was properly dead on the Friday and properly raised to life on the Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. We should toss it in. And go down to Kelly's, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But Christ has been raised. On the third day, he rose from the dead. If you want to ask more about what it means for Jesus to be in hell or the place of the dead, I'm going to refer you to question time. But let's just be very clear. The fact that when Jesus is on the cross, he's being punished for sin. When he cries out Psalm 22's words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus makes it clear that he knows that he's being punished by God for sin. He himself committed no sin, but he's the perfect sacrifice for sin. As the one who is fully God, he is perfectly worthy. An infinitely valuable sacrifice because he is God's own son who despite being human was sinless 
and perfectly appropriate sacrifice because he is like you and me, tempted in every way, yet without sin. As Jesus is on the cross, it's vital to remember that he is fully God and fully man, that he really died. This is not just what we believe, but this is in whom we believe. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus' bodily resurrection reminds us that heaven is a physical place with bodies. It's tempting, I know, to think that heaven is full of angels and choirs and ghosty people. But Jesus' resurrection and his eating of food after he's come back from the dead and his insistence on people poking their hands in his fingers in his hands reminds us that heaven is a physical place where we will eat and feast with God. Jesus is seated, the idea, at the right hand of the Father. He sits there in this, piece, this place of authority. We're not so big at it anymore. I mean, when I go to my parents' house for dinner, often there are place cards. Do you get that? No, it's just my parents are weird. Um, and, you know, you're not allowed to sit next to your partner. You have to be separated so you talk to meet someone new. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is a sign that he is the right-hand man, the one who has been given all authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And that's the future for Jesus, to judge the world, the quick and the dead, as it used to be said, the quick meaning the living. Jesus will judge each of us. And there's one of those moments where the creed goes from fact to personal. You and I will stand before God with Jesus as our judge, asking how have we treated the sovereign Lord of all the earth? How have we responded to this king? Have we entrusted our lives to him? Or have we ignored him as God and lived our lives our own way? The tail end of the creed speaks about the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Thanks, Reg. As we say the creed, it's tempting to think that there's only one line about the Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit and a bunch of other stuff as well, which we couldn't categorize in the Father and the Son, but no. These are the fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because we believe that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God, we recognize that the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to work in the world. What does the Spirit do for us? Well, here's a list. The Holy Catholic Church. (gasps) I thought we were Anglicans. Uh, Whenever I speak about this church and the Roman Catholic Church, I make sure I say Roman because Catholic just means universal. It's really important. I'll just say that again. Catholic just means universal, worldwide. We are part of a Catholic church because there are Christians everywhere who have entrusted themselves to this God. Christians in Syria. Christians in Pakistan. Christians, even in America. We are part of a worldwide, a Catholic church. And notice that the role of the Holy Spirit in the worldwide church is to make people, did he get the adjective? Holy. This is part of your future. God, the Holy Spirit, is working in you, in us, in every Christian everywhere to prepare us to live with God in eternity. He's making us Holy, unnatural as it seems to us, but he's in us. 
reminding us of our sin, empowering us to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness, to good, right living under God. The fruit of the Holy Spirit includes the communion of saints. Communion here not meaning the Lord's Supper that we eat together, but just participation in the life of Christian life lived together. The communion of saints. This great relationship of Christians here as we gather on a Sunday and your relationship with every other Christian throughout history. Because the same Holy Spirit who is in you, if you've entrusted your life to him, is in the person sitting next to you. That's why we can't but forgive one another. That's why we make peace with one another. Because even though we do the wrong things by each other, the same spirit which God has graciously put in you is in your brother and sister. The communion of saints is this great bond of people who have each been adopted into God's family. You are part of a fresh entity with Jesus as our elder brother, with God as Father, with the Holy Spirit empowering us to live as these new people. I'm not sure what your experience of this church or other churches has been. Ultimately, people will disappoint you and let you down. But you are part of a place where new beginnings are real. Where God is at work in us and through us. Where we're called to spur one another on. To be the people God calls us to be. It's why church is sometimes a bit uncomfortable. Because you realise sometimes how unwilling you are to care properly for other people. How hard genuine holiness is. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us into who we're going to be. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is forgiveness of sins. We have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That our sin is properly forgiven. Do you doubt that God could actually forgive you? That that thing that you just keep doing even though you've turned to Christ... Those thoughts you keep having, that thing you can't seem to help yourself doing, that God could still love you? The Holy Spirit in us is a reminder that God has demonstrated his love, that he has sealed us, guaranteed us, that his work of forgiveness in Christ is complete, that he will hold on to us until that day when he returns. The Holy Spirit is the one who, whom, through whom God raised Jesus from the dead. I've spoken already about how the resurrection is physical and real. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is a resurrection that leads to everlasting life. I can't really explain this to you because I haven't experienced it yet. But our future is with the Lord Jesus and with God the Father. Because of what God has done as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, to wind up tonight, three things that uh, the Creed reminds us about who we are. Firstly, the Creed reminds us that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. When we stand in a minute and we're going to stand in solidarity to say the Creed, you'll realize as there are other voices around you saying this, that you are part of something that's bigger than yourself. 
You've been enfolded into something where you are not the center, where in fact God is the center. And there are others doing the same thing as you. It's meant to be encouraging. Like when we stand and sing, you might not always feel it in your heart, but it doesn't stop it from being true. That's the great thing about God being a person. He's real and true. And these things that are about him, these facts, remind us of who he is. We are part of something that's bigger than ourselves, the first thing. Secondly, on the complete other end of the scale, when you stand tonight and say the creed, you'll start by saying, I believe. Now, I can't speak for you. You will stand tonight as a reminder that one day you will stand before God the Father himself. You'll stand before Jesus, the judge whom God has appointed. And it won't matter then what you believe, but it will matter in whom you have believed. If you've never turned to God in faith and said, please forgive my sin, if you've never turned to God and said, please take my life, let me live for you like you planned. Tonight's the night. No better night than tonight. Don't do it unthinkingly. But there will be a time when we stand before God. And when we say the creed, we're reminded, not just that there are many who believe this, but that this is something between you and God. It's a relationship about whom you believe. And lastly, and this is uh, just to come back to the place where we started, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. The creeds remind us when we say them that uh, we are part of a process of people who guard a good deposit. We see that in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says uh, in verse 13, What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So when we say the creed, we're reminded that As Andrew said before, the Christian faith isn't something that we discovered or that we made up. It's something that just is true because of who God is and what he's done. And our job is to kind of defend it. We don't do that just by saying the words of the creed. We defend what Christianity is by the way that we live, by how we speak in the public sphere about who God is and what he's done, how mercy and grace and love characterize who we are how we care for the oppressed. But it also involves in standing up for Jesus. In Australia at the moment, that's reasonably easy to do. There are other parts of the world where guarding the good deposit of the faith will get you in trouble with the government and with people who oppose you. But when we stand and say the creed, we're reminded that, yes, we're part of many. Yes, we stand as one before God. But also that we're people who say, this is what's true about God. And whenever you say that, by definition, you're also saying, and so other things are not true about God. There's much more to say about these things, but I'm not going to say any of those now. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand together and say the creed. So please pray with me first. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us uh, through your prophets, uh, through your son, uh, through the scriptures. And we ask tonight that you might help us to know you better. We pray that we'll be a people who are dedicated to growing in knowledge and love of you through your word, by the power of your spirit. We pray this that we might live lives that give honour to you. 
Help us to live in light of who you are and what you've done. Help us to live with an eye on the cross where you've demonstrated your love for us. Help us to live with an eye on the judgment of Christ that is to come. We thank you, Lord, that you are merciful and that you call us to turn to you in faith and live as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.